Hello, I'm Nicole Abadie and I write about books for Good Weekend. Welcome to the Books, Books, Books podcast in which I interview the best writers from Australia and overseas about their latest books. Thank you for joining me. Today I'd like to welcome Suzanne Leal, writer and lawyer to Books, 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 to talk about her third book, The Deceptions, a compelling story which moves between Czechoslovakia during World War II and Australia in 2010. It was published in March of this year by Alan and Unwin, and we'll come back to that at the end of this interview. Suzanne, welcome. Oh, thanks for having me, Nicole, and congratulations on Books, Books, Books. So exciting. Thank thank you. Congratulations on the uh, publication of your third book. Suzanne is a highly respected figure in the Australian literary industry, as well as being a writer herself. She's a regular presenter at writers' festivals and other literary events, and for some years she was the senior judge for the New South Wales Premier's Literary Awards. She's also a lawyer who sits as a senior member of the New South Wales Civil and Administrative Tribunal. And as if all of that wasn't enough, she speaks fluent French and German and is a keen runner. Suzanne, it's great to have you here. I'm going to ask you to do a little reading from your book, but before you do that, could you just tell our listeners what your book is about, The Deceptions? Thanks so much, Nicole. Yes. So my book, The Deceptions, is really the story of Hannah and Carol. Hannah, who was a young Jewish Czech woman who was sent to the ghetto outside Prague during the war, a ghetto called Theresienstadt, and Carol Kruter, who became her guard, who was a Czech gendarme and who was so beguiled by her, he was very keen to have some form of relationship with her. That's the kernel of the wartime aspect of the book. And what I was interested in is the ramifications of that relationship down time and also through generations. Suzanne, the story is based on a, a true story told to you by friends and former landlords. Could you tell us tell us a little bit about them and then about the true story that, that your story is based on? Yes, so years ago out of university I was looking to for a flat to rent and um, my then boyfriend and I were looking to move to the beach around Bondi, Tamarama, Coogee and we found this excellent advertisement for a place in Tamarama. Turned out there was a disadvantage. The disadvantage was that it was a duplex side by side to the landlord's house. We got the place, and in fact, what was probably uh, in my head uh, a downside for the accommodation turned out to be a real upside. I became very close to my landlord neighbours, Fred and Eva Ferger. Fred um, had a photographic memory. He was also a linguist. He spoke um, a number of languages, including German, which I share with him. And so we would speak in German. Uh, Apart from that, he was Czech and Jewish. Jewish by by history, really, rather than by faith. And he'd been a Holocaust survivor. So after some years of living with them, I asked if I could take down his story. For me, the Czech Holocaust story was quite a new story. And I think, you know, it was some years ago, and I think it was a bit of a new story regardless because Czechoslovakia had come out of communism and a lot of the war stories, I think, had been um, had been underplayed in Czechoslovakia following the war. So the story about the Czech Holocaust survivors was very interesting to me. And because he had a photographic memory and it was, it was a dream to transcribe and to record him because he could remember details, extraordinary details. So over about a year, we interviewed, and he told me about um, 
his story is the story of he and his wife, Eva, who had both been teenagers in the ghetto and who had both been then later deported to or transported to Auschwitz and on to other concentration camps. When Fred and Eva had been taken to the ghetto, um, the ghetto was guarded not only by SS soldiers, but also by Czech gendarmes, who were a type of mixture between police and military. And they became friendly, or at least they had a decent relationship with one of the gendarmes who broke his arm. Uh, Eva's father was a doctor. He set the broken arm for the gendarme. The gendarme was grateful. He asked what he could do to uh, make it up, or at least to pay them back. And they asked to have correspondence and parcels sent into the ghetto bypassing the censorship. To do that, uh, the gendarme needed to write down Eva's father's details. His name was Dr. Franz Fischer. And all went very well until it was discovered that the gendarme uh, was having a relationship with a young Jewish detainee, which was unlawful under the Nazi laws. He was discovered, he was arrested, his notebook was taken from him. In the notebook um, was discovered Eva's father's details. Dr. Fischer was taken to the small political prison outside of Theresienstadt, and Fred and Eva were then transported. I know what happened to the gendarme after the war. I don't know what happened to the woman with whom he was having, and I'm not sure what to call it, a relationship, um, an affair, a bartering situation. And um, that was the thing that really got me because I knew a little bit about the story. Uh, I knew how it was that the gendarme had come to the attention of the Nazis, but I didn't know if the woman with whom he'd had this relationship had survived, or if so, how, and what had happened to her. So that was the kernel for the story. So, yeah, so that's the starting point. With that background, would you like to read for us an extract from your book? Oh, well, thank you very much, Nicole, for setting that up. So this, um, the book is divided into different characters' names. Um, Hannah is uh, the main character and her narrative is in the first person. And this is from the beginning of the book, so I'm not spoiling anything. And it really goes back to when she is um, still in Prague and what happens when she's taken from Prague with her parents. Although I was Czech, I spoke German with my parents and if asked, would have offered German as my mother tongue. But with the invasion of the Germans, my mother tongue became the language not of music and literature, but of oppression. And in public, at least, we turned to Czech. So when, for example, my mother and I would take the tram to Westerswiss Square to visit the boutiques, it would be in Czech that we would, that we would exclaim at the new season fashion. And when, by coincidence, we would bump into friends or acquaintances, no longer would we risk conversing in German. But even this did not protect us from the attention of those who passed us in the street. I thank the Germans for this, for their gift to us all, we Jews who had burrowed ourselves into the population. Their gift in September 1941 was this, a yellow star to be sewn onto our coats, our jackets, our shirts, our dresses. One look and you knew it. That was a Jew in front of you. How efficient, how simple, how ingenious. The yellow star was something different. The yellow star took things away, slowly, like that party trick for children. It's a well-known game. 
at least it used to be. Ten items are on a tray, the tray is taken away, one item is removed, and when the tray is returned, the children must name what is gone. By the end of the game, nothing is left. This is how it was for us, the Jews of Czechoslovakia. One by one, everything we valued was taken away. School, gone. University, gone. Puff, and it was all gone. The libraries were closed to us, the cinemas, the buses. We were allowed no radios, no newspapers, no wine, no spirits, no oranges, no mandarin. And for those who were disobedient, who did not adhere to the ever-growing list of rules, off with their heads, as the Queen of Hearts might say. But who would have thought the punishment for keeping a radio, for entering a cinema, would be so great? Thank you, Suzanne. I think that sets the scene so effectively for us. One thing that will be apparent to any reader of this book is that your research here was extensive and you list in your author's note all of the many books that you consulted. How did you enjoy that part of the writing process, the research, the extensive research that was involved in writing this book? Sometimes it feels like you're um, avoiding the main game. Sometimes for me it felt like I need to write the book and it's hard to write the book and sometimes the research feels like it's getting in the way. What I find hardest about writing is the first draft. That's like, uh, it's very difficult. And so what I want to do is get to the end of the first draft and then I can enjoy myself. And this is initially while I was reluctant to write the book because I, I knew that I couldn't do it without research. I'm not, I'm not a fabulous researcher. Um, I'm, I'm not a meticulous researcher. I, I found what I needed to do, but I never felt like I was of an academic standard so that I'd um, had everything covered. And I, I, I envy or I envy, I admire those people like Claire Wright who write these, these fascinating and really accessible books with extraordinary research. So, and it's partly why I write fiction, I think. I was going to so say, her, her um, writing is non-fiction. <laughs> yeah, her writing is non-fiction. Exactly, fiction. yes. So, so, I mean, but, but this book, because it, A, because it was the Holocaust, and I think you have a duty to be more accurate because you're writing about the Holocaust. I'm not part of the Jewish community. Um, and it was an enormous tragedy for the world. And I don't think it can be made entertainment. And I think there's a fine line between um, fiction as entertainment and fiction as uh, telling a story that should be told. And so I was really mindful I had to be really accurate. So like it or lump it, I had to get the research right. Suzanne, as well as all of the reading that you did, did you also speak to, to Holocaust survivors, to people? You, I know you, you had the stories from your landlord. Did you speak to other Holocaust survivors as well? Did you speak to other people in, in your research? One of the things I read was that to find out more about the gendarmes, you contacted the world expert on the gendarmerie. <laughs> I thought maybe you could tell us a little bit about that. It, Professor Clive Emsley, you know, sometimes you just think, I'm just going to do it. I'm just going to put myself out there. I, I'm, there's very little work on gendarmes. There's very little on Czech gendarmes. There's very little studies of Czech gendarmes in the Theresienstadt ghetto during the war. Uh, there's one book by a man called H.G. Uh, Adler, who was in the ghetto himself, who wrote really an encyclopedic work about Theresienstadt. And you just have to look through that quite carefully to get little bits about the gendarmes. 
for this um, Professor Emsley, who's now retired, I think, he, I mean, he, he, his, his specialty has been gendarmes. And as I understand it, the whole gendarmes came back from the Napoleonic era, so from France and then spread through Europe. So I, I emailed, I, you know, just go, when you just have a little bit of chutzpah, and I just thought, oh, I'm going to email him. I found, you know, you can just find odd emails on Google. Found his email, wrote to him, and so we engaged in a bit of an email conversation. There's another aspect of the book which I think is really fascinating, and it's really the crux of the book, and that is the plight of women during World War II, and in, in particular, in this case, the plight of a Jewish woman who found herself in this ghetto city in Terezin. Has there been very much written about that? was my first question. And my second was, you refer in your list of uh, books and articles that you consulted to, one that looks to me quite fascinating called Sexual Barter in Times of Genocide, Negotiating the Sexual Economy of the Ghetto. I'm not going to try and pronounce the name because I know I'll mispronounce it. So I wondered, yes, first of all, if there'd been very much written about women in this sort of situation and what you what you learned, what you drew from that article that I've just mentioned. Yeah, um, because there was so little I could find about it, I, I looked harder and I found the work by this woman, and, I, and my check is not check. It's, um, her name is Anna Hajkova, H-A-J-K-O-V-A, and she has um, written a lot about women in the ghettos. Um, apart from that, it was really things you had to glean from memoirs. There's been quite a lot of memoirs written, um, some by women, a lot by men. And um, Fred, when I spoke to him about the ghetto, would say offhand, everybody was sleeping with everybody in the ghetto. I mean, that's how it worked. Um, because, And generally the more important person um, you could have a relationship, the safer you became. So there was, a, and in this article um, itself, it's talking about one of the um, Jewish elders, Mummelstein, um, um, his name was, and it talks about him having an affair with a, a much younger woman. Whether I, I don't, I don't know how. Um, I, I presume that's factual because it's in this article, but I have no knowledge of it. And um, the idea was, if you could attach yourself to someone important, then you might survive. And I suppose the interesting thing for me is, it's all very well having a romantic stand on this time, but it was times of survival. And I remember even when I spoke to Fred about his relationship with Eva, and it, it was a, it was a love match, and they remained very um, dedicated to each other throughout their lives. But he said there was no way that I was not going to be in a relationship with her because her father was so important in the ghetto. So apart from it being a love match, it was also important for his survival because whilst the SS determined the numbers of people to go to Auschwitz and elsewhere on the transports, it was the Jewish Council of Elders who decided who they would be. So if you were protected um, you by the, the council, then you were potentially safe in the ghetto. So, of course, the survival instinct is really big. And um, what women had, according to this article, to, to give was themselves and she she refuses to call that interaction a prostitution but she calls it a sexual bartering because within the ghetto that's what she did people were hungry um people were um potentially badly clothed if if, if their um 
suitcases didn't arrive with them because they were sometimes confiscated. There were problems with sanitation. There was problems with accommodation. So um, survival was the imperative. So let's come to talk about Hannah's particular story, which you obviously drew on all of this research that you've done to tell that story. Let's start just with a little bit of background about what her life and her childhood was like in Prague, where she grew up. Yeah. So the um, the person I had in mind for Hannah was, I think, the, a fairly um, not typical but not uncommon young Jewish Czech woman living in Prague, um, a woman who was well-educated and my experience with the Czech community and, the, and it's the Jewish Czech community that, that I, I know a little bit is that women's education was uh, lauded and and given and the arts were very much respected um, as was music and writing and so you'd have um, a group of people who were very intellectually developed or very intellectually educated and artistic and cultured and she's no exception so she's got a father who's a dentist she's got a mother who comes from a business family and she's this not necessarily beautiful but charismatic and educated and you know, the world's at her feet until suddenly the world's overturned and she finds herself in this ghetto working as a, a labourer in a in the agricultural fields which were outside the ghetto. So she was 20 when she was transported there with her parents. Can you tell us a little bit what life was like on a day-to-day basis, what life was like for her, for someone like her there? Yeah, in the ghetto. Yeah. So, so um, the issue with the ghetto is that unless you were a very high ranking within the Jewish population of the ghetto, you were in barracks. So Fred um, himself had, uh, later on, he and his family had a small house just near the crematorium. Um, so the crematorium was used for people who had died of, you know, at least of natural causes. I mean, there was no there were no gas chambers. It was um, a way that people died at, in quite large rates. So his father was in charge of um, the crematorium. So he got his own accommodation, but most people didn't. So mostly it was in barracks and they were um, divided by sex. So Hannah and her mother would be in barracks of three, uh, you might have seen them on, on photos, but the three rung um, bunks and you'd have maybe 30 women in a small room and her father would be in barracks elsewhere. And the food was rationed, you, unless you were lucky enough to have a cook plate. Most people didn't bring things like cook plates with them because they thought they were going to luxury accommodation where everything would be available. So you bought your clothes, you bought your evening gear, you bought your musical instruments because that was allowed through the census. And um, they found themselves in barracks with um, these great canteen kitchens with really poor nutrition. So you'd have... Um, Fred always talked about this really yucky coffee, so chicory coffee, but it, it was made of, of chicory. And um, he, it, for all of his life, he, he'd get this sort of look of distaste when he when he tried to, to describe it to me. And you'd have soup for, for um, dinner and there would be very little, by the way, of vegetables and fruit. The sanitation was poor as well. So she's given a job, Hannah's given a job working in the gardens under the supervision of Karel, who's a gendarme, and he begins to show an interest in her. What does he do? 
He's interesting. He grew, he, he was a son of farmers. He was the second son of farmers, which meant he wasn't going to inherit the farm, so he needed to find something to do with himself. And it's a coup when he is selected for the gendarmerie. They get a fantastic uniform and there's a sense of power. Um, but what he knows is farming life. So he knows how to till the land. So when he gets to Therese, when he's um, appointed to Theresienstadt or his position is in Theresienstadt, um, it makes sense that he should oversee the gardeners. And what and, happens um, when he lays eyes on Hannah? She is someone very different to the women that he knows. I mean, he's grown up in a small village and he um, doesn't really know Jewish people and he doesn't know people who are as cultured as she is. So he's he's pretty um, beguiled by her and he's pretty taken aback by her because she has this charisma about her and she has this, she's quite dry. She's almost quite sarcastic. She doesn't defer to him. He wants deference, but part of him doesn't want deference. So there's this... Um, there's this um, beguiling relationship that he has to her. She doesn't really care that much about him. And I suppose that for him is also appealing in some ways. And he's recently married, isn't he? Yeah. So he married his, um, he married a woman from the village and she was the great beauty in the village um, who didn't give him a second look until he came home as a gendarme in the uniform. So She's the prize. The problem is when he gets the Theresienstadt, start, he sees that the world is much bigger than his world has been. And within the ghetto, he sees such um, phenomenal art and culture that he is bedazzled by it and bedazzled by her. And so his wife um, pales in comparison. We start to see him paying little attentions to Hannah, which are, are very significant in the context of the very deprived circumstances in which she's living. The great threat that hangs over anyone that's in this ghetto is that they might be transported. And eventually that happens to Hannah's parents. Before her parents leave, her mother gives her some advice. What is that advice? Hannah has been quite sheltered. As a woman, she's quite um, appealing. She's quite um, charismatic in an almost sexually appealing way as well. And yet she's been very protected by her parents. So she's more naive than you might expect by the way she looks and even the way she, she carries herself. When her parents are taken away, suddenly all the advice her mother has given her as a child, which is keep yourself modest, um, keep yourself... Um, Okay, and we're talking about the 90 pure, and we're talking about the 1940s or like the 30s and 40s. Uh, suddenly, that, that that's all changed. And as she's leaving, she says, "Do whatever it takes to survive." And when Hannah tries to ask her more, tries to have that clarified, she knows she's talking about the gendarme, and that she should encourage his advances. And how does Hannah feel about that advice when her mother tells her that? How does that sit with her? I think I think she's shocked. I think you know you know when you know you've grown up with one one set of morals, um, and the same person who's given you those morals suddenly is telling you something completely different. I think the shock of her parents about to leave, and at this that stage they didn't know where they were going. They just knew they were going east. And for someone in Prague, east wasn't good. It was cold. It was um, they thought less cultured. And so I think the shock of that, and also the shock that she's got to you know, somehow um, be um, deferential to this man she doesn't 
particularly like. It's shocking. She does take her mother's advice and she enters into a relationship of sorts with him. What are her feelings for him and what are his feelings for her? But I would say for him it's a love story. I think it's a great love story um, and I think he probably, I think, think people are complicated and I think partly he, he likes the power. He really does like that, that, that uniform carries with it uh, a great sense of importance for him, a man who's never been particularly important. So for him, he likes having power over her but at the same time I think he believes that this is a beautiful story, a beautiful love story um, with a woman he adores. Then how does she feel about him? I think she's quite pragmatic. I don't think he's he's not as bright as she is, or at least not in the way that she's um, been told to examine intellect. And um, he's the guard and he doesn't understand music. He's not, um, she can't talk books, she can't talk literature and he's a, he's a bit, He's a bit heavy, you know. He's just not from her world. So, and I, but I think, I think part of her recognises that there's a kindness, and I think physical intimacy um, can be a solace. And I would say that sometimes that is a solace to her. Uh, that's why I, I'm interested in that grey area where, yes, it's an exploitative relationship, but within that, there are moments of solace. And she's not repelled by him. She says she's not repelled by him. She's not disgusted by him. Um, but in her mind, she has no choice. She's taking the advice that her mother gave her, right? She's surviving. I mean, she's a prisoner and the prisoner's duty is to survive when you can't escape. And that's what she does. And I suppose that's what he overlooks. But in fact, she has the power in some ways because intellectually and her temperament is so droll and so arch. She is. She really lords it over him in all ways except the actual circumstance, which is that she's actually his prisoner. And Suzanne, I think you did advert to it a little bit earlier, but just if you could make clear, what would be the consequences for these two if this relationship, this illicit relationship, was discovered? So what they were involved in or what he was involved with was, was called Rassenschande or race shame. And under the Nazi laws, um, it was unlawful for a non-Jewish person to have any intimacy with a Jewish person. And my understanding was the, would be that that would um, result in transportation. Um, so that was a crime, that race shame was a crime, wasn't yes, it? Yes, it was very much a crime. So tragically, we find that Hannah does end up being selected to be transported and she finds herself in Auschwitz. She's put with four other women who she forms a sort of a friendship with. She develops a particularly close friendship with a woman called Eliska, probably mispronouncing that, Suzanne, also from Prague. She's very kind to Hannah and they seem to really provide solace to each other. And it, it made me think of something that I saw that you had said, Suzanne, somewhere earlier, which was, I'm particularly fascinated by the human capacity for kindness and hope and resilience, even during the most tumultuous of times. Tell us a little bit more about that. I think what's interesting in having researched the war and having looked at memoirs of people was just how people would react during times of great danger and what the 
ability to survive was so great. So when I spoke to Fred, he would talk about being frozen, um, being sleep deprived, and yet every day he would get up and he would get up and he would get up. And there are people too who, despite difficult difficulties, and I'm not just about the war now, I'm just thinking about everyday difficulties, um, grief um, for whatever reason, for, for death through death, through marriage loss. Um, there are people who react with absolute kindness and absolute goodness. And I'm always astonished by those people because I wonder whether I would. I mean, I, I have friends who have um, managed great kindness when they've been treated not well. And I was trying to envisage what would that temperament, personality temperament, bring to the camp? And I came up with Aliska, who becomes a really close friend to Hannah. And I think there are people who can completely look beyond themselves, look to the group and gain their own sense of um, energy from that. I don't know that I'm one of those people, but I've certainly met people around me. To what extent does Aliska's kindness, do you think, assist Hannah in retaining hope and in retaining optimism and, and in fact actually surviving as she ultimately does? I, I, I think it's almost entirely because of Aliska. Um, when, when Eva was talking to me about um, the death marches, um, when well, these, these extraordinary marches where you'd march from one concentration camp to the other, it was... Um, people that she would talk to on the way and getting words of encouragement that would make you able to walk when you thought you couldn't. And I met a woman called Sudenka Fantlova, who was also one of, on one of those death marches and her sister was with her. And she writes of the encouragement that women around her, groups of women, give to each other. And um, I, think, I think the mind... The mind has to be strong and I think it was the physical ailments and the physical deprivation it was unbelievable and I think it's often the strong the strength of the mind that got people through what physically really was impossible. Suzanne, you write about those scenes after Hannah is transported when she goes to Auschwitz. She's involved in one of those marches that you've just described and she ends up in Belsenbergen. You write about those in a great deal of detail. Whilst you were doing that writing, as far as I know, you were also working in a very demanding job as a lawyer, as a, a tribunal member, a judge in effect, and living a very active family life. How hard was it for you to switch on and off, to extract yourself from how you must have been feeling reading that sort of material to bringing yourself back into your everyday life. Did you take a period of months off work, for example, to write the book or did you write it as you were continuing to work as a lawyer? So for lots and lots of years I've worked part-time now. So, um, yeah, I do the job but I do it in, in a shorter amount of time and I, I could uh, work more hours or I could work less hours depending on the imperatives of everything else. So it's been a really good, it's been a really flexible job um, I also think, and, I, and I, I'm, not a, I'm not a natural lawyer, I don't think. I, um, studying law was quite difficult for me. I started doing languages, and law required 
such a rigor, almost a mathematical, almost a scientific rigor, which I don't naturally have, and also a linear logic. And um, that was something that I struggled with at law school and, and gained, I think. And I think what I also gained, and I don't know if this is a good thing or a bad thing, is the ability to compartmentalize. So the ability to, to and this is part of the reason that I wanted to be a lawyer rather than a social worker, because I thought if someone came with me with their whole life problems, I wouldn't know where to start. But if they came to me with a legal issue and a discrete issue that I could solve, then maybe I could manage that. So, and, and, and through the law I've done, which is either criminal law or refugee law and now um, child protection issues, people come to me often in trauma, but with a discrete issue, which is manageable. And I think the book was the same thing. It was a very difficult situation. And when you're writing, to some extent, you have to be in the head of the character. And, and what you must have been researching, what you, I mean, the, the degree of horrendous detail that you write with about her experiences after she was transported. I'm just trying to picture how you how you could ever switch off from that, how you how you managed to move in and out of your daily life while you were dealing with that sort of material. It might have been something I worked I, I learned at the Refugee Review Tribunal, because at the tribunal I was a I was a member and my job was an inquisitorial job to question people about uh, what had happened to them to see if mm. they met the criteria for a refugee so they're talking about persecution and the problem is if you take that on board you can never write up the decision and you can't go on to the next one so you have to and I started it quite young so I think you have to learn that it's a bit like um you know people who are rescuing someone you run in you grab the person you run out and then you do your next job And, and I think I learned that when I was younger the refugee cases would upset me, but no one wants a crying tribunal member, no one wants a crying lawyer. So I had to, and I learned that at legal aid, I learned, you know, when I was sort of almost on tears with a result that I hadn't expected in, in the criminal field, that's the last thing any applicant wants or any client wants. They don't want you to be crying for them. They want you to be strong. And I think I've learned that strength through law. And I think with the book, I wasn't looking, I don't know if it sounds callous, I wasn't looking to be moved. I was looking to answer a question. I needed to know how um, Hannah was going to get over a river when she's on a death march. And I needed to know um, where they went. So I needed to find out in my research people who had crossed this river older on a death march, how they felt and what the chances of survival were. So it becomes almost a a scientific question and I think the what I owe I think to the topic is to do it well I don't think I owe to be distraught by it but I think I owe to tell a story accurately and with some honour and I think that's as far as I took it. Suzanne let's talk a little bit about Karel we learn we We see, uh, as you've said, the book is written from the perspectives of a number of different characters and we meet Karel very early in the book and he's at this stage an 89-year-old man, he's living in Australia and it's clear to us that he's made a life for himself in Australia after the war. Early in the book we hear him pretending when his, his wife calls him, he's out in the garden working, his wife calls him to come in, that she needs him, and he deliberately pretends that he didn't hear her. 
and makes her call again. And he says to himself, he knew that a better man would not have done that. What does that tell us about his relationship with his wife, Irena? I think when people have gone through great upheaval and great distress, um, there is inevitably a really um, a lot of pressure on a relationship. And I think um, people who have um, left their country of origin, and that's what happened to Anna and Arena, have more pressure on them than, than a lot of people. And I think if it's a marriage, and this is a marriage where um, he'd had an affair during the war, um, he'd been beguiled by this woman, he'd been in love with her, we don't know what happens, and he doesn't know what happens to her. So she's almost like this, um, you know, people just carry a torch. And, and and sometimes maybe that's good for a marriage. Maybe to have the fantasy figure is good for a marriage, but often I think it's quite difficult. So I think it's very difficult for Irina to compete with a woman she doesn't know she's competing with. Does he still think, does uh, Karel still, all these years later, does he still think of Hannah? Yes. Yes, he thinks about her almost all the time. And I think that probably comes with age as well because... Um, this ability to fantasize yourself back into your youth when you're finding it hard to move. I mean, it's, it's, it's what many of us do. I think, you know, this is why fiction is popular, popular because you can ex- export yourself into a, a new world. And I think for him, he becomes the younger man he no longer is. And that involves Hannah because that was what I think he thinks was his great love. I want to talk to you now about one of the other characters in the book, Tessa. So Tessa's 32 and she is Karel's granddaughter. She's the daughter of his daughter, Petra. She works in a law firm as a personal assistant and she's having an affair with her boss who's older than her and he's married. His name's Evan. Tell us a little bit about him and about the relationship between Tessa and Evan. I think Evan's probably pretty awful. But um, he's also pretty charismatic and he's pretty sexy. And I think that's possible. I think you're going to have not particularly attractive people who are somehow sexually appealing. And he carries power with him as well. I mean, he, he, he's made it to the top of this law firm. She's an admin. She's bright. Um, but she has a job which is subservient to him. And um, he knows more than she does. Uh, he's quite educated and he doesn't uh, hold back in telling her so and giving her, um, he, he's better at really expensive restaurants. He knows his way around a different part of the city. And for Tessa, who's not that person, I, I think that's quite beguiling. He, uh, bu- he yes. buys her expensive gifts, doesn't he? Yes, yes. And, and um, you know, there's a price that comes with that as well. Like he brought he, he buys a beautiful negligee, he buys her jewellery and even when she thinks she should be getting out of this relationship, there's something there's something appealing about the attention. And I suppose what I wanted to look at too is that um, what is her responsibility in this? She's a single woman, she's fancy free, she's got no kids. Um, he's the married man with the wife. Is she doing the sisterhood a disservice or... Is she a free agent? And that's his problem. And that's what I wanted to try and weigh out. It seemed to me the other thing that you were doing was drawing a parallel between Hannah's relationship with Karel and Tessa's relationship, who was married, 
and who Hannah knew was married. And then you've got Tessa's relationship with her married boss, Evan. It seemed to me that there were differences and there were similarities. The critical difference, and I want to see if this is what you think as well, is that Tessa has a choice about whether she enters into the relationship with Evan and Hannah doesn't. Is that the way that you see it as well? I think it depends how you define choice. Um, There is physical choice, which is for Hannah, uh, what she thinks is, okay, I'm either protected and he's the only one left to protect me or I'm not, so I either choose death or I choose life, that's what she thinks, which is a very clear um, choice. And Tessa's is, I either stay with this man or I don't. But that that doesn't allow for the pull of a an illicit relationship or an attraction where she might know in her head what that this is bad for her and she shouldn't be there. But if there's this almost animal magnetism between them, how do you stop that? I mean, where's the cutoff point and how strong do you have to be to, to say no to that? So that's the point I wanted to explore there as well. Another similar, well, a big similarity, I thought, between the two situations was that in both cases it's the man that has all the power in the relationship. So obviously in a, it's in a particularly stark relief with Hana and Karel where he, he doesn't hold a power of life or death over her but he can protect her and if she's with him he can offer her enormous protection, he can give her food, he can overlook the fact that she steals the odd potato. Similarly, in the situation with Tessa and with Evan, there's the same power disparity on a, on a smaller scale, but that seemed to me to be a similarity between the two. Again, was that a deliberate choice by you to make, to show those those parallels between the two? I'm not sure if it was absolutely deliberate, but I think the comparisons are apt. I mean, I, I think I did want to work out what does a woman do in situations that are difficult? And I, and, I, and I take your point too, that it's the man with the power and the woman without. But I think as the book goes on, that changes a little bit. So I, I, I never wanted it to be um, powerful, bad man and um, powerless, um, weak woman. Uh, yes. And, and, I, and I think as the book progresses, that dynamic is, is questioned a little bit. Susanna, I want to ask you now about the concept of truth. The book's called The Deceptions and there are plenty of them in the book. There's a really interesting debate towards the end of the book about the concept of of truth. And we have one character who's a reverend who knows a secret and if she discloses that secret, it could do a lot of harm. But she feels that she should, that she owes it to the relevant people to tell them the truth. The other character challenges her about that and says sometimes... The truth is something that shouldn't be told. And he says, for me, sometimes the question is not if the truth is deserved, but if it would in any way be helpful. I thought that was really interesting. Is that that a better test, do you think, that that sometimes it's actually better not to tell the whole truth and that the real test for whether you should or whether you shouldn't is whether it will actually be helpful? I thought that was a really interesting way of looking at it. I think I, if I were asked between those two um, questions, I think I would say that. I would say that in actions you do, is the good being furthered at all? And how is the good being furthered? And if it's a matter of telling a truth that is harmful, um, I think first of all work out 
is it up to you? Is it your question to tell? And um, if it isn't, uh, is it your role to intervene? Uh, I think that that's the first question. And the second thing is, um, you know, we've got a lot of black and white dynamics going on at the moment, I think. I think perhaps less so in COVID. I think um, there's been a quietening of the world through this crisis. But um, there's, there's this idea that um, the truth teller is the good and the liar is the bad. And I'm not sure if that's true. And I'm not sure if, I'm not sure that's right. And I'm not sure how we define truth as well. I mean, it, 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 we have this idea that truth is an absolute, but I think there are gradations of what the truth is, your truth, my truth, their truth. And as a lawyer, you see that all the time. I have to make decisions on the basis of different people's testimony on different documents. And in the end, what you come to is a conglomeration of material um, where there is a truth, but it might not be the only truth and it might not be a helpful truth. Suzanne, you've written three novels. Your first novel, Border Street, which was published in 2006, dealt with a similar subject matter to this, uh, what life was like for the Jewish people in the, in the ghetto in Czechoslovakia and their experiences of concentration camps. Your next book, The Teacher's Secret, in 2017, was completely different. It was about a scandal in a small coastal town in Australia. What made you return in this, your third book, to the subject matter, the similar subject matter that you had dealt with in Border Street back in 2006? So I was running and I'd finished The Teacher's Secret and um, or at least I'd submitted it and I thought, okay, I need to write something else. Um, I'd written a thesis at, at um, you know, arts, well, my arts degree that I really hated. It was um, medieval Tristan and Isolde comparing French and German and I spent a year on a topic that didn't interest me. And after that, and I, you know, I was beside myself by the end of it. And I thought, whenever I'm going to write something long form, it has to be compelling enough for me not to get bored and not to hate it by the end of it. And as I was running, I thought, well, this is the story that keeps coming back to me. This is the story that was never resolved. This is the story where no one could tell me the ending. This is the one where I keep, when I've got a quiet moment, I think, how would I have behaved? What would I have done? And even though I'm going to have to do a whole lot of research, which I don't want to know, I'll give it a shot because it'll keep me. Um, Very unluckily for you, your book was, the publication date was the 31st of March 2020. At that stage, you had a launch lined up. You had countless writers' festivals to speak at. You had numerous other literary and other industry events where you'd been invited to talk. And just before your book was released, we were all placed in lockdown and all of those things were cancelled. You have been hugely resourceful and innovative in finding new ways to promote your book. And I'm wondering if you could share with our listeners some of what you've done in the hope that maybe there might be people listening out there that are in a similar situation that are releasing books at this very difficult time who might be inspired by some of the fantastic things that you've done. So you tell us a little bit about what you've done uh, to find other platforms and other ways of promoting your book. Thanks, Nicole. So, look, I'm not a very good dinner party person. I can't sort of get together and make a fabulous feast. But if I'm stuck uh, somewhere with three cans of something and two vegetables, I can make do and I can do it well and I can do it with people because there's no pressure on me. So when everything just collapsed, 
uh, there wasn't much time to think. And I thought, well, enough time to think, I thought. Um, I've got to do something. I mean, this has taken a long time to get this book to fruition. Alan and I wanted to do an excellent job on all the pre-publicity on the cover. The editing was great. It was a book that I felt satisfied with. I, I felt proud of it. Um, Zoe Caritas had done the audio book. And I thought, I can't lose this because you don't get much chance. It's only every few years you get a book out. So I, I need to make the most of this. But I was recommended to, um, I had really good marketers at Alan and I'm one of an excellent publicist. And also I was um, given the name of a, 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 of a woman who uh, assists with social media. And I'm not a natural social media guru, uh, but I take direction. So she gave me suggestions and I thought, well, this is my opportunity to get online in a way that I know I should have been for a long time, but life gets in the way. And I thought, okay. Um, like with the three cans and two vegetables, I've got to make a casserole. <laughs> I've got to make it as good as I can. And I felt less pressure because I thought people are feeling sorry for me. That's great. Um, and people have goodwill as a result. And people are going to accept if you're a little bit halting in this new, brave new world. So this Nalia, who's doing, been helping with the social media, and Laura, my publicist, and Rebecca, who did the marketing, were very encouraging of me of doing this um, online launch, this Facebook Live launch. And um, I say I did a test run beforehand for Facebook Live just to check it would all work. And I got this call almost immediately from this school friend of mine just laughing and laughing. And he said, you know you're on live, don't you? <laughs> you know the test runs run for Facebook Live is live. <laughs> Hearing in and I'm looking at the button. Can that I'm be removed once it's out through. there? Yes, yes, yes. I said, I said, Paul, help me, help me, get rid of it, get rid of it. Then take a deep breath, have a look, and there's the delete button. Okay, so for the <laughs> benefit of our listeners, I can give Suzanne won't be, um, she'll be too modest to tell you, but the actual live Facebook launch, she was dressed up to the line, she looked fabulous, <laughs> and holding a glass of champagne as she toasted her book, as many of us listening to that fantastic launch did. The other thing you've done, Suzanne, is you've started an online book club. Yes, so, so what, what I've done, I've, um, I, I thought it would be interesting to just have a short book club, so just for half an hour. I think people can generally, if you've only got half an hour at their disposal, um, and I started at 8 o'clock every Thursday, and I talk a little bit about my writing process, books that I've written, or a little bit about the writing world, and I've done a fair bit of literary judging, so I'm quite interested in the awards, that have, and a lot of them are coming up at the moment, so we'll talk about that. I'll make a book recommendation or two, and then open it up to the book clubbers to recommend their books. So and how's that been? Fun. Has it been fun? Oh, it's been really nice, and and and, and it's been quite casual. So, so that's look, that's been. I mean, it's always a bit nerve wracking, isn't it, doing Zoom because you're just waiting for the time where the video is not going to work. And but I think in this time of COVID, people have got gentler. And I think, what's the worst that can happen? I'll just turn it off. I'll turn it on again. At times, I've done up my phone if, if there's been a problem with the computer. And I think. I really do think this, the, the, the literary community has been very kind and been very supportive of each other. So through these, I mean, your 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 um in your new podcast, books, 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 is, is personifies that that um people around the community have said, well, how can we, what can we do to keep this industry up and running? 
what can we do to support local writers and Australian writers? And that makes me more confident that I can be part of it, I think. Well, congratulations on what you've done. Thank you. Thank you. I want to end by asking you, because I know that everybody right now is looking for book recommendations. So I'd like to ask you what you've read recently that you've loved and what you're looking forward to reading next. So what I've read recently um, is The Love That Remains by Susan Francis, which is a memoir. It's a a memoir of grief, but also of hope and resilience. And it's a very honest book that I, I very much enjoyed. The second book is, um, again, a memoir, and it's Diving into Glass by Cara Llewellyn, and she was shortlisted for the Stella Prize. And it's the story of her father, who from a very young age was completely immobilised by polio, and how he managed that life and the four children that came in to his um, family, or who he, 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 um, he fathered, and then how Cara Llewellyn manages her life and also the surprise diagnosis of MS some years ago. And she's and a former Cara's, artistic director of the Sydney Writers' Festival. She, she is indeed. The Penn International as well in New York? Yes, yes. So she, she, she ran um, Sydney Writers' Festival, then Penn in New York, and then a festival with um, the New York Library. And now she's doing an online festival called um, Together Remotely. And um, look, she's got a really quick, uh, careful, funny, uh, I and I really enjoyed that book. Yes, one more is um, A Boy in Winter by Rachel Seaford, and I have to claim because she is the daughter of my late father's best friend, and um, uh, she was at the tender age of 20 something shortlisted for the Booker Prize for the um, Dark Room to my absolute chagrin. And I was sort of writing and not being published, <laughs> and um, I have um, I've got over that, and she's the most beautiful writer her most recent book is a boy in winter fantastic Suzanne thank you so much for talking to me and to our listeners today it's been really wonderful to have you on the show thanks Nicole terrific to be here thank you for listening to books 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 if you liked what you heard in this episode please go to my website nicoleabity.com.au to listen to all the episodes and find out more about the podcast you can also find me, Nicole Abbey, on Facebook, Instagram and Twitter and look for my reviews in Good Weekend. You can subscribe to Books, Books, Books at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google and all the usual places. Since it's a new podcast, it would be lovely if you could go to any of these platforms and give Books, Books, Books a rating or review. Thank you. I look forward to talking books with you again soon.